0: Dances 1 and 4. Hallelujah, Christ is risen.
1: He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.
0: Let us pray. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you alone are God, and to you belong all glory, honor, power, thanksgiving, and praise. By your word and spirit, grant us to trust in you with all our heart and to believe that you will provide for us and our children, both small and great. To your hands, we commend your servant, Keith. Bring healing and strength to his physical need and preserve him in your peace. For you live and reign, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Just a brief pause. I guess, uh, Keith Kunkel, one of our uh, choir members, um, had a little episode this morning, should be okay. EMTs checked him out. Probably have to start issuing warnings uh... in the bulletin about the sermons so they <laughs> they may be uh, hazardous to your health they're supposed to kill and also make alive so i'm going to tease him at choir that he wasn't paying attention to the text from isaiah about not growing weary or fainting <laughs> you got to have a sense of humor. All right, Psalm 115 is the psalm for the week. And this uh, wonderful psalm begins, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And then the second half of verse 1 gives the reason. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Uh, the hymn, uh, Not Unto Us, is based on this text. A hymn written both text and music by Kurt Eggert, the brother of Hildy Fisher, who was called to be with the Lord this past fall. In the Catechesis Notes for the Week, this psalm is a meditation on the folly of idolatry and a meditation on the Lord's faithfulness. It begins by ascribing all glory, honor, and truth to the Lord God, who alone is God, And so when you see that Lord in all caps, it's referring to the great I Am, the God of the promise of salvation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who alone is God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of eternal mercy and glory. So the reason for the exclusive claim to glory that belongs to the Lord is His mercy and truth. That's the second half of verse 1 that then runs throughout the psalm. He alone is God, he has no master, he does what he pleases, but he always acts in ways that are true to his nature and faithful to his word. So even when it might seem as if God is capricious or arbitrary, why is he doing what he is doing or allowing what he is allowing, according to the gospel of Christ and the promises of God's word, he is always acting according to his nature. All other deities are false gods made in the image and likeness of mankind's cravings and appetites. None of these so-called gods can truly satisfy, nor do they have any real power. Furthermore, there's always a difference in disposition for the Christian toward the Lord and a worshiper of other gods, and that disposition is one of the line of direction. For us as Christians, the primary action is God to us in love for our salvation, as opposed to the worship of false gods, which is us toward them. Psalm 115 enjoins us to trust in the Lord, to believe that He is our help and our shield from every misfortune and from the ravages of sin and death. He acts according to His promises of salvation, and He will never abandon His people, here again, even when it seems as if His people are being abandoned. Though He is the creator and sustainer of the universe, yet in love He cares for us and provides for our lives and our salvation you get this wonderful thing going on in the scriptures, and you'll see it in the the Old Testament reading from Isaiah today, where he holds all of creation and sustains it, you know, the starry splendor and so forth. On the one hand, yet on the other hand, he is particular and specific in his love for you. you So one could ask the rhetorical question, who am I little old me, that the eternal, omniscient, all-powerful God of creation loves me and deigns to save me and to be interested in everything about you. And every, every red hair of your head is numbered, Kathy. Okay? Now, who am I? So... Though He is the Creator and Sustainer of the universe, yet in love He cares for us and provides for our lives and salvation. For these reasons, the faithful believer need not fear. The Lord will bless those who fear Him, both small and great, as the Psalm says. So we began Bible class with the Psalm prayer uh, based on those themes. Uh, that leads us into then the verse for the week, which is from John chapter 14, verse 6 words of Jesus as a part of that extended catechesis in the upper room with the disciples on Holy Thursday. Let's speak the words together. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Of course, the second half of this verse is talking about the exclusive claims of Christianity. We would get along a lot better with other people and other religions if we said there are many roads to salvation. But when we say that only Jesus saves, that's what gets us into trouble. And so you can believe anything you want as long as you don't uh, proclaim to others that there is only one objective truth. But the thing about confessing Jesus as the sole objective truth and the source of life and salvation is that, What he gives is actually good for us. It's for our betterment. It's what he creates and then what he saves. That's where fulfillment and peace and contentment comes from in this life and in the life to come, fellowship with God. Now, in this, there are so many times where the Bible expresses things in kind of a Trinitarian form. And so you have this, and and it's beautiful, We'll speak to the atheists out there. It's beautiful even if you don't believe it. Isn't it true? I mean, the atheist who finds in the Sermon on the Mount great beauty in the moral and ethical teaching there. To which then I would say, you know, there's a reason it's beautiful. Because the author of beauty is the one who spoke it. But the Trinitarian form, the way, the truth, the life. And it's not merely, as we've said so often, that he gives us life, but he is life. He is truth. He is the way. Now, this phrase, you can can understand this passage as a Christian, Jesus is my Savior. He's the way of salvation. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is truth, he speaks truth, he is life, he gives life. You can understand it simply in that way, but this phrase, the way, is exodus, okay? Ex, out of the way, it's referring to the deliverance from slavery, the way out of slavery to sin and bondage to the evil one. It's referring to the Old Testament Exodus, okay? And not only is it referring to the Old Testament Exodus, but all three of these are a reference to the Torah, which is the Hebrew, sometimes translated law, but you need to understand that it is the word of God which gives life, both law and gospel, both commands and promises. So when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, part of what he is saying is that all of the Torah, the five books of Moses, the commandments, the promises, I am all of that fulfilled. So when Jesus spoke to the disciples, who were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus on that Easter, he opened up to them in all of the scriptures, beginning with Moses and then the prophets, all things that pertain to himself. So you think about every promise of the Torah, every action of God in the Torah finds its fulfillment in Christ. He is the way out of sin, death, and the bondage to the devil. He is the truth. He is the life. And as we've spoken many times in the past, the, the Old Testament church thought of the Torah as manna from heaven, food from heaven. So to meditate upon God's word, your word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path, uh, captures of that. All right, let's speak this again. I, I am, am the way, the truth, and the, the, truth, and the life. One no one comes to the, the, the Father except through me. me. Okay, a couple of other things from the congregation at prayer. In case you didn't notice, last week, after our resurrection narratives in the Bible readings, in the first couple of days of the week, we then returned to where we had left off in the Old Testament continuous readings where the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines, but it caused them so much trouble that they couldn't wait to get rid of it, and they sent it back. Uh, by the milk cows, uh, to Beth Shemesh. So those Old Testament stories continue this week with Samuel judging Israel, Israel's demand for a king, and when they do that, they are rejecting the Lord as their king. Then there are two feast days this week, St. Mark Evangelist, uh, which is also today. Now, Sundays trump minor festivals, so we're still white today. Um, but you can observe this at home, the uh, account of St. Mark, chapter 16, verses 14 through 20, which is the resurrection witness of uh, the evangelist, St. Mark. Next Saturday, St. Philip and St. James apostles. A word about Mark, Mark was not an apostle. Mark and Luke were not apostles, they were evangelists. Mark had been originally a companion with his um, uncle Barnabas from the island of Cyprus who accompanied Paul on his first missionary journey. They went from Antioch in Syria and they sailed uh, across the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus, which was Barnabas's home, Barnabas was a wealthy uh, early Christian, and um, he got the name Barnabas Son of Encouragement as he encouraged the church to receive Saul of Tarsus, even though he had been a former persecutor, and he encouraged so many with his uh, gifts of charity as well as being a fellow missionary with Paul. But Mark, as a young man, sometimes referred to as John Mark, accompanied them On that first missionary journey, he went with them on the island of Cyprus. When they sailed to the mainland in Asia, Asia Minor, Uh, the threat of of bandits, disease, hardship, persecution caused John Mark to retreat. And he bailed on them and went back to Jerusalem. Uh, That incident caused. At the beginning of the second missionary journey of, of Paul, a sharp dispute between he and Barnabas. Barnabas was going to go with Paul on the second missionary journey, but Barnabas once again wanted to take John Mark, and Paul essentially says, No, I'm not having that, you know, maybe he said, lily livered fellow along with us. You know, he doesn't have the stamina, he doesn't have the stomach for this. And there was such a sharp dispute that Barnabas broke away from going with Paul and took John Mark to Cyprus, and Saul bypassed Cyprus and went to the churches founded on the first missionary journey. Now, there's there's a number of lessons to learn from this, Uh, Number one, conflict in the church, even among brothers, is nothing new. It goes all the way back to the apostolic times. Sometimes the conflicts were for, you know, legitimate doctrinal reasons when Paul, for example, opposed Peter to his face because he would not eat with the Gentiles when he came to Antioch in this church made up of lots of Jews and Hellenized Christians and so forth. Uh, and Paul said, you're undermining the gospel of God's free grace. And he got in his face. And then some of them are, you know, like this dispute with John Mark and with Barnabas. Uh, so, and, and with Paul, Paul and, Paul and Barnabas. But the, God brings good even out of our screw-ups and failings and occasions such as this. Later, John Mark becomes associated with another apostle. And perhaps this other apostle had a greater degree of empathy than the former association with Paul. And that second apostle was Peter. So Peter certainly knew by experience what it was to boast in his own strength, only to find out that he had no strength of his own. And when you know that, you look at some of the things in Mark's gospel that he reports on. You can see um, connections to Peter and how that uh, he reported on things that Jesus did that would be of comfort uh, to him. So Mark became associated with Peter, and he wrote his gospel under Peter's apostolic authority. Luke would later become associated with Paul and write his gospel under Paul's apostolic imprimatur. But at the end of, toward the end of Paul's life, he specifically asks for Mark. So the falling out over uh, what happened in the early days um, was, was resolved with reconciliation, compassion, and mercy later on. But that uh, helps us to understand the collect for the day. Oh, and I wanted to share with you just the, it's easier for me because it's on my desk here. For St. Mark's Day, that hymn that has all those stanzas to all the minor festivals. uh, For Mark, it says, For Mark, O Lord, we praise you, the weak by grace made strong whose labors and whose gospel enrich our triumph song. May we in all our weakness reflect your servant life and follow in your footsteps, enduring cross and strife. And that's one of the uh, advantages to observing saints' days. We don't do so as Lutherans in a works-righteous sense. The saints are saints because of what they accomplished. Actually, it's the opposite. They are saints because of the forgiveness that Christ has given them. And we see ourselves in their weaknesses, and therefore they become patterns for us, like John Mark uh, in our own earthly pilgrimage. And so the collect for St. Mark is in the congregation at prayer. Almighty God, you have enriched your church with the proclamation of the gospel through the evangelist Mark grant that we may firmly believe these glad tidings and daily walk according to your word. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. All right, let's turn to Judges chapter 6. If you have any questions along the way or follow-up, we can take those. But we're going to finish up our discussion of uh, the Judges, and of Gideon uh, in our Old Testament survey. And we'll be taking uh, the rest of the Old Testament catechesis uh, into uh, the summer for Sunday morning Bible class. Remember our central thoughts, how the Lord raised up judges to call the people to repentance and to deliver them from their enemies. And we saw this pattern of The Lord delivers them. They rejoice in his deliverance. Then they, in their comforts and so forth, turn away. He raises up enemies against them. They cry out to the Lord for help. He raises up a judge. The judge delivers them, and the cycle starts all over again. That happened throughout the 400 years uh, of the judge's Second point to remind you of, Old Testament Israel is a type of the church in this world in whom there will always be a struggle between unbelief and faith. So that goes along well with our saints' discussion. Third central thought, the Lord sends affliction upon his people for their sin because he loves them and he desires to draw them back to his promises of grace. So, when you read that Old Testament, you'll ne- the Lord is never forsaking his people, even though the judgment that he raises up might feel like it. You know, like, I'm done with you. you now he allows them to experience their folly, but he never abandons his promises. And finally, the Lord does his work through the lowliest and weakest of men, and we see this in Gideon so that they put no confidence in themselves, but glory in the Lord and his grace. So the Sunday School uh, lesson this week is about Jonah. I mean, find a prophet who was strong. You know, Jonah got his divine call and ran in the opposite direction. Now, James isn't getting a divine call. He's getting a vicarage assignment. So we'll see if he takes it or if he's where? Are you kidding me? You better not do that, otherwise they'll be in... They, they, they frown on that very much, okay? But uh, so now here with Gideon. Remember last week what the Lord said to Gideon. He called him a mighty man of valor. And he wasn't. But the Lord calls things that are not as though they are. It's what I try to tell the young pastors. Your strength is in the Lord saying, go. I'm sending you, like Nathan to David. Who's Nathan compared to David, the king and the great theologian? He's the one whom God called. Go. So you go in the strength and in the might of the Lord. Okay. so in chapter 6, we've got this for us here. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 1, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Something completely different. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years. Then skip to verse 11. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree. So this is the messenger of the Lord who is the Lord. So this is the pre-incarnate Christ. The same messenger of the Lord, angel means messenger, who appeared in the burning bush that was not consumed and called Moses to redeem Israel from slavery. This tree belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. We discussed that last week. It wasn't uh, vintage time, so you'd use the winepress area to hide it So, it's not confiscated by your enemy who is stronger than you. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, "Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Remember what I said. Even when it appears, as it did to Gideon, as if the Lord had forsaken them, even the raising up of the Midianites against them was to serve his good and gracious purposes. It's what all, this is what the promise of God is to those whom he calls to faith. I will be faithful to you, even and especially in your Suffering, whether it's suffering of your own doing or through no fault of your own. All right. So then the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? That's what I was talking about. There is his strength. So he said to him, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel Indeed, my clan is the weakest, puniest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Remember Jesus' words to the apostles, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offerings and set it before you. And he, that is the Lord, said, I will wait until you come back. So here, Gideon in his weakness, he's, he's been called, now he asks for a sign. And what's interesting is, and you find this in the Old Testament, how often. Demands like this are made after a Lord, the Lord makes the promise, but the Lord never says, Fine, if you're not going to believe my call, I'm going to get somebody else. He doesn't do that. Instead, he bears with Gideon's weakness and infirmity. Here again, I try to tell this to pastors I, I, I realize you're pathetic. You might as well agree with them. You know when they when they say, "I'm not worthy of this office. I'm pathetic. I'm a lousy this. I'm a lousy that." Granted, they don't. First of all, people don't expect that. <laughs> Instead, they would say, "Jody's, I'm all of this. I'm terrible. I'm terrible." You say, "No, you're not. Come on, buck up. Look at all the things that you can do." But is that the message of the law, or is that the message of the gospel? If I say something nice, you know. Like, Jody's troubled about how he doesn't feel like he's a good husband to Becca and so forth. But you are. Look at how you take care of the family. Look at how you love her. Look at how you've been raising your children. Is that law or gospel? It's the law. Just because words sound nice doesn't mean they're the gospel. The gospel is the message of grace and mercy to unworthy sinners in Jesus. That's the message of the gospel. It's the message of Jesus' death and resurrection. It's the message, Jody, though you are a poor, pathetic maggot sack, your sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. That's the gospel. The gospel is not, you're okay, come on, you got a lot of talent. That's the law. And then, as the person who is troubled by their failings, when they hear that, that pep talk of how great they are they know the truth and it's not comforting their consciences are still troubled but that God loves you even though you are like Gideon weak and pathetic and still he calls you okay so maybe just maybe oh pastor oh pastor Gideon maybe just maybe the strength lies in the Lord's word and not in you Maybe, just maybe, it's in his call and promise, not in you. You think? Okay. His call is what makes you fit for the office. How about that? But here he bears with Gideon's weakness and he asks for a sign. So now we skip ahead to verse 36. The fleece. What is a fleece? It's it's the skin of sheep's wool. Exactly. And when was the first animal skin in the Bible offered by God for our benefit? Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve, he provided, well, actually before Cain, he provided the animal skins to cover them. Okay, now I know. See, you're gonna think, "Oh, Pastor, you're just making this up." No, I'm not. He he did. They tried to cover themselves with greenery, and as wonderful as greenery is, it was could not be the covering for sin. It's used for what's that? It doesn't last very. Yeah, well. and then it get dries out and it gets prickly and all that jazz. It's not a great fashion. Scene. You're right. Okay. But but what you're going to say is is folly. He covers with animal skins. Now, ultimately, when he covered Adam and Eve, their shame and their sin in the garden, not with with leaves, but with the animal skin, what is that pointing forward to? Jesus. Jesus, robe of righteousness that covers our sin. Now, here's the key question that you're going to say, oh, you're just making this up. No, no, think. Through what commodity, through what material commodity, you know, compound? That's technically what it is in science, I guess. Through what compound does Jesus apply this robe of righteousness upon you that covers your sin? Water. Water. Blood is the content, John, of the water, the blood of Christ. But by water, where? In baptism, he clothes you. Do you think there's any significance to that in the sign? And in baptism, who becomes the sinner? Jesus does. Who becomes righteous? We, because our sin was imputed to him who had no sin, this happy, blessed exchange. All right. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, this is verse 36 of chapter 6, Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And so it was, when he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, and let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. So here the Lord allows Gideon to put him to the test. The reason he allows Gideon to put him to the test is because the Lord had called Gideon to be his mighty man of valor and to deliver Israel even though he had no strength and the Lord was not going to go back on this word. But here in the sign of the fleece, we see a foreshadowing and picture of the blessed exchange where the sin, like the sin of Gideon, is laid upon the Son of God, the angel of the Lord who is the Lord, and his righteousness is laid upon us. And the sign happens twice in this grand reversal. By the testimony twice, the Lord's word and calling is confirmed. So that he gives to the weak and doesn't go back on his promise. What a fantastic thing. Any comment here that someone wanted to say? Cindy! Yes, and just be careful about um, if you see something happening in the Bible, then trying it out yourself because um, you 're not Gideon by the way you're also you 're not even Deborah, that prophetess who became the only female judge in israel 's history so uh the Lord raises up and does what he does to teach us today. The, the, point, the greater point here is reliance upon the Lord's word for Gideon and what the Lord's word calls him and declares him to be. Okay? Now, what is, here is the significance to the sign. Where should we take our comfort? In the righteousness of Christ, the fleece of Jesus' wool that covers us in our baptism? So for the pastor or the judge, you know, it's not only his call and ordination, those holy orders that are his strength, but so is his baptism, foundational for him as as a minister of the word, okay? And so it is for us in our earthly callings. Jody can say, I am a baptized Christian, so I may have this failing or this shortcoming as a husband or as a father, but as a baptized Christian, I lack nothing. And therefore, in the strength of my baptism, the water of salvation, Christ's righteousness, I will continue in this office and do what God has called me to do. Okay? So there is a very significant... Uh, <clears throat> this is very significant that we learn the lessons from the scriptures and uh, for... And, and, and anchor our hope in the gospel and the sacraments. All right, now chapter 7. So after this sign, uh, chapter 7, he uh, actually does what the Lord has called him to do. Jerubbaal, that is how he was known by the um, Midianites, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Harad, so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them, by the hill of Mora in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands. Why does the Lord say that? Lest Israel claim glory for itself, against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Has any general ever told a president of the United States, you're giving me too many troops? No way. The more, the merrier. You know, shock and awe, as it was called, will overrun Saddam Hussein in Kuwait, and he won't stand a chance, and we will vanquish the country. No, we're going to take 300 men into Kuwait? Are you kidding me? All right. So, verse three. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, "Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead." And twenty-two thousand of the people return, and ten thousand remain. So, you had an army initially of thirty-two thousand troops. Now it's down to ten thousand. Over two-thirds have left. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say to you, This one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. Now listen carefully, and then I'll illustrate what this is talking about. The Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink, you set those apart. And the number of those who lapped, like dogs, putting their hand to their mouth like a tongue was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Now what is going on here? So the Garak's are here, and since they raise cows, if here's the you know, here's the, the trough of water, the cows stick there mouth right in the water. Is that not true? But do you have a dog on the farm? But the dog does this, right, and laps, and it makes the water splash all over the place. Well, when men lap like dogs, they don't do it like this. Instead, if this is the ground and this is the river, they lap like dogs like this. They take their hand, like a dog's tongue, into the water, like this. You get the idea? So their tongue is like the dog's tongue, their their hand and arm is like the dog's tongue lapping into the water. You get the idea? Now, you might say, have any of you, well, have any of you drunk water like a cow from a stream? I have. When I was... uh, in my teens and worked in Wyoming and you're up in the mountains with this icy cold water to stick your face in the water and drink, which is not a good idea really, but it's so cold and refreshing and good. You lap it like this and you begin already to cool down those mountain streams that are snow melt runoff, okay? So it, it happens. Now on this occasion There are 300 who lapped like dogs. And the rest of them got down and stuck their faces in the water. So now the Lord said to Gideon, verse 7, By the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. So he's gone from 32,000 troops to 300. A victory secured with 300 men over this massive army of the Midianites is not going to inflate the ego of Gideon or those soldiers in the slightest, but rather the opposite. It'll give glory to God, who it is obvious is the one who gave us this victory. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of the Midian was below him in the valley, and it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. There's a promise again. If you are... But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. It reminds us of how the fearful Moses was given Aaron to accompany him. Now go down to the camp with Pura, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outpost of the camp, men who were in the camp. Now, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. He said to him, I've just had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. It came to a tent and struck it. So that the tent fell and overturned and collapsed. Isn't that how dreams go? All kinds of weird things. A loaf of bread knocks down a tent. Whoever heard of such a thing? Well, in your dreams, that happens. Then his companion answered and said, This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon and the son of Joash, the man of Israel. For into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Okay, such an interpretation. But the 300 men to an army as numerous as the locusts, and the sand is on the sea. I mean, that's what, what can a loaf of bread do? Can you imagine George H.W. Bush throwing loaves of bread into Kuwait to try to get Saddam Hussein out? Okay, so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. So finally, after all this, Gideon becomes, quote, the mighty man of valor. Finally, through the Lord's long-suffering patience with his weaknesses. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers, you know, that you'd put water in, but you can hide the torch in the pitcher. So you have trumpets and pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do just as I do. When I blow the trumpet, and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Just as they had posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets, broke their pitchers that were in their hands, then the three companies, encircling them above this valley where they were, blew the trumpets, broke the pitchers that they held torches in their left hands and trumpets in their right for blowing, and they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So you can imagine the mighty calamity, this loud crashing of 300 pitchers, this blowing of 300 trumpets, this shouting of 300 men, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon, and it echoes through the valley, all of this sound, and they look up and they see the camp surrounded by these torches, and what happens? When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion, throughout the whole camp, and the army fled to Beth Acacia towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel-Moholah by Tabath. And the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. So the Lord gave them victory. Now you can imagine they're blowing their trumpets; they've smashed their pitchers, blowing their trumpets, holding their torches, and then they're watching as the Midianites turn their swords against one another. Wow. It's reminiscent of the Red Sea when Egypt is bearing down on them and Moses says, Stand still, hold your peace, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you. So the final word here is just as by the word of the Lord, this weakling Gideon was made valiant and strong, so by the word of the Lord, salvation was brought to Israel by the Lord through these three hundred men. All right. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. He's risen Next week, Ruth.